Hello, you're listening to the Tamba and podcast. I'm Paul Dorn, and in 2011, Potter Gotuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life, and we love it. We're staying on Zoom for now, and you can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us at our website, 10by9.com. And since we miss our lovely live audiences, this is a special podcast with three very funny stories told in the good old days at the black box. First up, here's Addie Baker. Hi, my name is Eddie Baker. Now what you're looking at here, this is the album cover for an album called The Bakery by Eddie Baker. (laughs) Now, some of you might have already noticed, that's not me. (laughs) This is a tale of two Eddie Bakers. This all started about seven years ago. I was doing copy editing work for a publishing company. It was not very interesting work, and I won't lie, I was easily distracted during the working day. These distractions would normally take the form of little challenges between our team of copy editors who could sneak the most song lyrics into formal emails, (laughs) who could draw the best dinosaur in Microsoft Paint, (laughs) whose name, if typed into Google, returned the fewest results. Now, the day we did that last one, I thought I'd know what I was expecting to find because as a closet narcissist, I've Googled Eddie Baker many a time. It's not that common a name, particularly when you factor that Eddie is my full name. It's not Edward, not Edmund. It's not short for anything, Eddie. Now, usually, Googling Eddie Baker would bring up nothing but pages and pages about a woman named Mary Baker Eddy. She is the founder of the Christian Science Movement. But on this day in, it was about July 2012, the first three results on Google were Mary Baker Eddy, the aforementioned founder of the Christian Science Movement, a review from a rap music website, and a YouTube video of a rap song called Top Shelf by Eddie Baker. Now I was flabbergasted. Years and years of Mary Baker Eddy. Yet here I was, looking at a video of a man with my name who appears to have nurtured a moderately successful rap career. How exciting to know that my namesake was also on a musical path, even if his path was gangster rap rather than my preferred genre of noisy and technically inept punk rock. Uh, Mr. Hutchinson, we should uh, hook up, I reckon. (laughs) So I looked at the musical website, and it was a review of this album. Here's a sample from the review. There's a little warning ahead of time that there is, this is going to be the first of many swears in this story. So here's a line from the... Uh, I'll just make sure I read this correctly. <clears throat> Eddie's vocals and the beats stay chill. It's impressive how Eddie does not sound angry when he says a line like, Motherfuck a fucking rat. Shoot him with the gat. <laughs> it does sound impressive, in fairness. So, after immediately setting that image as the background for my work PC, I went back to the review. Someone had posted a comment at the bottom. Thanks. Tweet me, at Eddie Baker. He was on Twitter. So I took a peek at his Twitter feed. Thousands of followers. 
constant retweets of people raving about his albums. Wow, he's actually doing quite well. I looked at his photos. Now, almost every single one of them was him smoking a joint, rolling a joint, <laughs> pointing at a joint, <laughs> pointing at someone else rolling a joint. If the theme of tonight's 10 by 9 is a picture tells a thousand stories, here we had a thousand pictures telling the same story. <laughs> this man is a massive stoner. Still, I was fascinated, and well, there was only one thing I was going to do now. I had to make contact. He had to know that I was out there, that there was another Eddie Baker, an Eddie Baker who felt his pain, the pain of having Mary Baker Eddie ruining your search engine optimization. <laughs> so I sent him the following tweet. At Eddie Baker. Hello, Eddie Baker. I'm also Eddie Baker. We're practically related, so here's a picture of a stegosaurus. <laughs> and I sent him a crude Microsoft Paint drawing of a stegosaurus, which I probably should have given Paul, but um, maybe it was just one picture, I don't know. But he didn't respond. I waited a full day, but nothing. No reply from Eddie Baker. Now, I was confused. Surely he gets notified of new followers, of tweets directed to him. Surely, even amongst the mass, the thousands of followers he has, he'd notice someone with exactly the same name tweeting at him. But no. Eddie Baker and Eddie Baker continued with their lives, each independent of the other. I followed him on Twitter. Here are some of his tweets during this period. <clears throat> I just want to have sex and smoke weed all day today, nothing more. <laughs> you and me both, Eddie Baker. <laughs> right, here's another one. <clears throat> I am the boss and the muscle. Oh, he's a multitasker, brilliant. <laughs> I'm Eddie fucking Baker. We've got different middle names. <laughs> but nothing, still no reply. But then I had an idea. I thought I would ask him a question that I knew would be relevant to his interests. At Eddie Baker. What's your favourite type of baked good? <laughs> Mine is probably the cake. And I figured this had to work. This is a man who enjoys baked goods. Hell, a man is a baked good. <laughs> so I played the waiting game. I hoped... <laughs> Some of you got that good. <laughs> I hoped that mentioning cake would attract the attention of a man who is clearly on a permanent case of the munchies. <laughs> and then one day, he replied... I like pie. <laughs> yes. Finally. Finally he had responded. And he had responded specifically to let me know that he liked pie. Not, hey, we have the same name. Or why is this random British man tweeting me about cakes? Just, I like pie. Still, better keep this going, I thought. No idea when I could lose him. Best stick to what he likes. At Eddie Baker. Me too, Eddie, me too. I make a really good steak and ale pie, you know. And I had a moment of doubt after sending that to him because I thought maybe LA-based rappers, they don't know what a steak and ale pie is. I mean, I don't know, do they even have ale in LA? But it turns out that Eddie 
just really, really likes weed. Because his reply to that was, weed cakes and brownies. <laughs> so now I didn't know what was going on anymore. <laughs> Were we just listing baked things that we liked? Was this a word association game? So I panicked. At Eddie Baker. Qu croissant? No reply. That was the end of it. I couldn't believe how foolish I'd been. I was on the brink of establishing a rapport with this guy, and I'd blown it by alarming him with a French pastry. It was too soon, damn it. He wasn't ready. And a few months passed. And during this time, I continued to follow Eddie Baker on Twitter. And while most of his tweets were about smoking weed and going to rap shows, occasionally he would have these quiet moments of self-reflection. <clears throat> I want to buy a hot air balloon. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't, Eddie Baker? Who doesn't? Bloody Richard Branson over here. And then his mind would skip onto passages new, like a baby lamb exploring a world around him full of joy and vigour. <clears throat> Death by quicksand would suck. <laughs> Bloody hell, Eddie, that's a bit dark. It turns out that day he was obviously in quite a morbid mood because he followed that up with this. What are some fucked up ways to die? Tweet me some. <laughs> so I did. Here's one. At Eddie Baker. Being sat on to death. <laughs> he retweeted that. And can I just remind you, yet again, he's interacting with me and still apparently disinterested in the fact that we have exactly the same name. <laughs> and he hit back with another. Imagine falling from a skyscraper. So I replied, yeah, I just did, terrible. It was like falling over, but for ages. <laughs> okay, I'm done talking about death. <laughs> All right, fair enough, so am I. So there's not a really a dramatic ending to this because eventually I just lost interest in harassing him. We had a few brief interactions. Mostly it would be me posting these facetious replies to things that he was tweeting. And sometimes he would retweet those. And then his fans would pile in on me and tell me to shut up. <laughs> um, one time I started a beef with one of his crew by tweeting at them to declare, and I quote, I could do a rap much better than you could do a rap. <laughs> yeah. But after that, um, I just kind of lost interest. It was quite exhausting following on Twitter, and most of the time, it really wasn't that fun. So, you know, I guess that's kind of the end of the story, but it's not quite, because, you see, I do a little bit of writing sometimes, and for a long time, I've always written a blog, which is like my short stories, stupid poems, all kinds of stuff like that. And a few months after all of this happened, I wrote a post about this, uh, pretty much everything I've just told you now, with all of the screenshots of all the tweets and blah, blah, blah. And I hadn't realised that when I'd first followed him on Twitter, back in 2012, um, he'd followed me right back. And so when I eventually put the blog post onto my Twitter, he saw that and he shared it with a tweet that simply said, read this with a link to my blog. And so as I drowned that day in Twitter notifications, mostly from his fans telling me to seek professional help, <laughs> I spotted one reply from Eddie Baker himself. Finally, and this was the tweet from him, at Eddie J. Baker. 
I fuck with you, brah. You're a fucking genius. <laughs> Validation. And I have a final postscript to the story, which I added in about the last hour. Um, me and my partner were just sat around the corner having a burger before we came along here. And we decided to search on Twitter to see if Eddie Baker was still on Twitter. Um, and he is, but he has changed his handle because for whatever reason, um, his previous Twitter account was uh, found to be in foul of Twitter's uh, <laughs> standard use. Uh, I can't imagine why, but it was probably the constant pictures of him with like an entire kilogram of weed. <laughs> but when we searched Eddie Baker on Twitter, um, he wasn't the first result that came up, and neither was I. There's a, a band in Australia called Baker's Eddie. <laughs> so I think I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eddie. And I will post the real Eddie Baker album cover on our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Also, we have a YouTube channel which features all our recent Zoom stories, so go check them out. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10x9, go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. Next up is a 10x9 regular, Paul Hutchinson. And while the story is very funny, it also deals with toilet humour. Let it be known, stated for the record, that Betty, who the family called Doris, was not and has never been medically trained. <laughs> I am sitting on the toilet, on a dusky pink plastic toilet seat. I am three weeks married. I am sitting on a dusky pink plastic toilet seat with a Vesuvius eruption from my rear. <laughs> A warm brown thick liquid <laughs> splattering rapidly with random violence into the long suffering, desperate to be flushed water of the toilet bowl. And to make things more fluidly fierce, book is also coming out of my mouth, charging and chunking disgracefully without decorum. Thankfully, a dusty pink wash hand basin is near my head as I sit, meaning I can evacuate from both the mouth and bottom region simultaneously. Small mercies, the ergonomic design of this bathroom. I am sitting on the toilet. I am three weeks married. And I am not, let it be understated for the record, in the best of shape. <laughs> and I am not at home. I am in the house of my in-laws. <laughs> the former family home of my three-week new wife. And I am destroying my in-laws' bathroom suit. <laughs> with stink and substance laced with shame. And the door is open. The bathroom door is open. My in-laws bathroom door. And people are looking in. 
and my father-in-law of three weeks is living in. And my mother-in-law of three weeks is living in. And one of my two brother-in-laws of three weeks is living in. And it's not a spacious bathroom. There is an eight-foot gap between us, and my face is wet with sweat and spit, and I am reeking from both ends of myself. And three weeks ago, I married into this family, this quiet, reserved, teetotal, religious family. I hardly know them. And the door is open, and family are moving in. Why was the door open? And why were people living in? My new father-in-law, my new mother-in-law, one of my new brother-in-laws. Was there nothing good on the television? That they had to stop everything and come and gawk at me, trousers round my ankles, mouth at the wash basin, arse glued to the toilet. Not at my best. Close to my worst. Paul, Paul, it's my mother-in-law Betty, who the family for some reason call Doris. <laughs> yes, Betty, I don't know her enough to call her Doris. That's <laughs> it. Could I ask you a question? She says, far away. <laughs> I said, and then lurch again to the washroom basin, letting its curved, dusty pink portion catch my insides coming out. Pause, she said, and then she paused, and then she said politely, How are your testicles? Church of Ireland, she did not, as far as I knew, have Tourette's. <laughs> she was a big lady with a perm, and let it be known, stated for the record, that Betty, who the family called Doris, was not and has never been a medically trained. Is this a test? You've been on honeymoon with my daughter. Have you been having sex with me? Is that what she means? Have I been overdoing it with her daughter? Or maybe it's about my potency, my ability to have kids, offspring, grandchildren, and she's checking this out early on. This is family, is it? This is my new family. How are your testicles? 
so many names for these dangling spears. Let me state for the record that my balls appeared to be fine, but with such pain in my back and such fluidity from arse and mouth, they could have been eaten off by a wolverine. <laughs> And I might not have noticed. <laughs> I looked down, gently, checking for nibbling wolverines. <laughs> Nothing. You seem fine, Betty, I said. Pain turning my polite smile into a grimace. No supplementary question came. But the doctor did. He arrived with full medical training and a bag of tools and drugs. I don't remember his name. Did he have a beard? I know he didn't ask about my testicles. <laughs> Perhaps Betty had already taken them aside <laughs> in private and said discreetly but with conviction, darn you son. His testicles are fine. <laughs> Raising her eyebrows with a knowing look. I don't know. I do know that this perhaps bearded doctor gave me an injection of morphine and told me it sounded like a kidney stone, which turned out to be correct, that it was very painful, and that it was going to be painful passing the stone, and that the morphine would help. I was kinged up and put in my new father-in-law's fresh but not new pyjamas, striped cotton, I recall, and then to bed. The old bed of my new father and mother-in-law, the bed of my in-laws. How strange. After only three weeks, I am sleeping in my new father and mother-in-law's old bed my new wife who had tiptoed tearful into this warm place on a few occasions as a child, seeking comfort from nightmare and storm. I remember saying, isn't morphine great? <laughs> I remember saying, let's not have sex tonight. I remember saying, I could stay awake all night. And then I fell asleep. Waking up the next morning, sleepy, drugs smudged in the king-size bed of my new family. And I would like to tell you that the night before, sleeping in my new family's king-size bed, amongst their shed skin and ghost whispers, that the dreams of my new in-laws mysteriously, magically mingled with mine, and that after that we saw each other differently, deeper, but I would be making that up. But what I can say, in truth, for the record, is this. Betty, who the family called Doris, was not and has never been medically treated. told me that story once around a dinner table. It's probably well off the best place to hear that story and then I begged him to tell that story at 10 to 9 and I've begged him a few times since so thank you very much for humiliating yourself in front of us. We're all thrilled. Ah, uh, thanks so much, Paul. I think that might have been the first story Paul told at 10 by 9 
and what a debut it was. He later came along to the Comedy Night, which is where we recorded it. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, and our September get-together is usually our annual fundraiser, which we missed out on this year. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're really thankful to everyone who has donated. Now, here's our third story, and again, there's a photo to go along with it, which I'll post on social media. Here's Jim Livingston. How about going away somewhere? Just you and me. Peter, my 17-year-old son, looked up from his Game Boy. A boy's weekend, I went on. His face lit up. Wow, that sounds cool. You mean, go on a plane and a hotel and things like that? Well, I, I didn't... Oh, Mummy, Mummy! Daddy's taking me on a plane and a big hotel and has a swimming pool and we're going... It's... I was buggered. Um, that was... <laughs> Daddy, that sounds great. Okay, son. So, so began our first annual boys' weekend. In our family, Peter and I are the oppressed male minority. <laughs> My wife and three daughters... The oppressive majority. <laughs> okay, guys, you know where I'm coming from. In February, I decided with 2006 that Peter was now approaching adulthood, and so was I, and the two of us needed <laughs> a little more man time together away from all these women. Rather disturbingly, the ladies reacted with joyful celebration. <laughs> I think they called it respite. <laughs> We spent a few days in research, finally deciding that we should fly to London and go for a day's racing at Lingfield Racing Course. I called the ticket office to find out about prices. When I explained we were flying from Belfast and that Peter had disabilities, the receptionist was just beautiful. And she said, no problem, we are going to make extra special arrangements for you two. And they gave us a table in the dining club, overlooking the finishing line, where we could eat, drink, view the races, and have access to all the facilities, all for £50 each. <laughs> 50 pounds. <laughs> so of course I had to book it. And after a Saturday morning flight a few weeks later, and a short taxi ride from Gatwick, we arrived at the course just in time for the day's racing. We were met by Maureen, the hospitality hostess. We placed our luggage in reception and escorted, her, escorted us to the dining club, providing us with race programmes and our little badges that allowed us to visit every part of the race course, stables, paddocks, betting arenas. We were treated like lords. We were even taken briefly to the director's box as VIP guests for pre-race cocktails. Peter never stopped smiling. I never stopped drinking. <laughs> It's all there, the race course, the dining table, a very happy boy with his race card, and the bottle of wine. <laughs> Our lunch was sumptuous. I drank lots of wine while Peter guzzled his favourite Diet Coke. And before the first race, we visited the bookies, and each chose a horse to bet on. With limited experience betting on horses, I tried to guide Peter as a, with my fatherly wisdom and advice. I think the term is patronising. <laughs> he spurned it all, selecting instead his horse using a very clear and well thought through strategy. Its name began with the letter P. 
I limited our spending to two pound each way bets, a total of eight pound a race. But for Peter, the numbers were irrelevant. It was just money to him. We returned to our table in the dining club with its fantastic view of the beautiful course and the horses and the jockeys. It was packed with several hundred people, all cheering on their horses from their drink-laden tables. Peter reveled in the electric atmosphere. My horse came sixth and his second. He was devastated. He hadn't won. But when I explained that his each-way bet meant that he had actually won five pounds, his eyes lit up like beacons, and he threw his hands in the air, screaming like a banshee. You see, to Peter, a fiver was the most valuable thing in the world. The folks around us smiled at his celebration. He couldn't wait for the next race. This time we stayed at our table while a lovely lady came to take bets using a handheld computer. This meant I could drink more wine. Yeah. <laughs> Happy days. Peter laid his second bet, employing a new strategy, choosing the horse whose jockey wore red. I lost again, but this time Peter won. His shrieks of joy resonated around the room and were applauded by our newfound racing friends. The third race, Peter won again. And the same in the fourth race. By now the whole freaking dining club was getting more and more excited by his winning streak. Of the first seven races, he won four, and was placed in three. When it came to the last, the eighth race, it seemed like everybody in that room was yelling, what horse is the young lad betting on? What's Peter backing? <laughs> Peter declared loudly like a town crier, I'm backing number eight, because it's the eighth race. Several punters shook their heads and groaned. It's an old nag, not worth backing. But most people, stuck with Peter's beginner's luck. The big difference was that while we were betting two pounds each way, others around us were betting hundreds, and in some cases, thousands, I tell you no lie, on number eight. And they were off. Everyone jumped to their feet. The horses were thundering around the wide bend. They were now approaching the finishing straight. Come on, number eight. Come on, please win, please win, cried Peter. The crowd around shouted, come on, minstrel girl. That was number eight. Come on, minstrel girl. I said, for fuck's sake, minstrel girl, come on. <laughs> At the finishing line, we held our breath in the final seconds. Peter was jumping up and down. Minstrel girl came across the line. Please win, number eight. She did! She bloody won! The roof came off the building. The cheering, the crying, the yelling filled the room like a typhoon. Peter was clapping his hands, tears running down his cheeks. Others had won hundreds and even thousands of pounds, but his tiny winnings, 12 pounds, were countless in terms of his personal achievement. Suddenly a bottle of champagne appeared courtesy of another table, who'd had a very big win, which they attributed to Peter, their adopted lucky mascot. All they wanted to know was when was he coming back. We left Lingfield that day with Peter the big celebrity, and everyone wanted to congratulate him. But now I drank two bottles of wine and a bottle of champagne. I was looking forward to bed. We took the train into London, checked into our hotel, and after a light supper, which I don't remember, <laughs> collapsed into our beds, very happy.
Peter richer by over 100 pounds and me well and truly pickled. <laughs> I woke with a start in the morning. Peter was shaking me. Daddy! Daddy, it's time to get up! It's Sunday! We have to go to Mass! <laughs> I groaned and held my very sore head with both hands. Peter, I croaked. When fellows go away on a boys' weekend, <laughs> they don't have to go to Mass, son. The Pope told me. Peter would have none of it. A young man wedded to routine was not about to change now. So reluctantly, I dragged myself out of bed. We had breakfast, checked out, boarded a tube train. But cunningly, 30 years in the civil service, I tell you, I had calculated that at 11.30am, it was now probably too late to catch mass anywhere. But to be sure, I suggested we head for Westminster Cathedral in Victoria, a good 40 minutes away. I judged we would find all ceremonies ended by the time we reached it. Standing before the magnificent building short while later, in the middle of that empty square, I commiserated with my poor son. Oh dear Peter, it looks like mass is over. <laughs> oh well son, God will forgive us because we tried our best. That's what counts, son. Especially when you're far away from home, you tried your best. Peter wasn't happy. He folded his arms in disgust and grumbled, I don't think that's right, Daddy. Suddenly a door opened and out came a young priest. <laughs> Wouldn't you friggin' he <laughs> He clapped and ran towards us. Hi guys Excuse me, but he was American. <laughs> You're just in time for today's special high mass. Come on, I'll get you a seat. I started to apologise and mumble some lame excuse, but Peter was already running after the priest. I trotted forlornly behind. It was a high mass to end all high masses. There were ten priests. There were two choirs. There was a fucking orchestra, for God's sake. Sermons that went on. Peter was in heaven, I was in purgatory. My head throbbed for the whole two hours. Yes, two hours! Jesus! I'm sorry. Was this God's punishment for me taking my son gambling? Or was it his twisted sense of humour for me conspiring to miss mass? Whatever, we grabbed lunch nearby and then off to Gatwick for the flight home. That evening, Peter chatted incessantly about flying the big jet, the racehorses, his winnings, and daddy's drinking. <laughs> as well as the big mass in London. It was the first of 12 boys' weekends so far. The magic is always not a look of joy on Peter's face, achieving something new and the precious time together. Us two on our boys' weekend.
Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Peter, lottery numbers, please. Quick. <laughs> I never did get those lottery numbers. Anyway, thanks so much, Jim. You can rely on Peter to keep you on the straight and narrow. And that is it for me for now. Check out the website, 10by9.com, and get in touch. We love hearing from you. We've also been back to our spiritual home, The Black Box, where we filmed the COVID-compliant mini 10by9 for Culture Night. I'll post the link to that soon. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Dorn. So you can blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs>